The act of interviewing can provide an obvious but often overlooked option for any writer to investigate their source material further, to engage in social research and search out the sorts of answers that only another human's version of the story can convey. At today's 11th hour lecture, Cheryl Fusco Johnson joins us to describe the process of conducting a good interview and how this action, the action of attention to worlds outside of our own, of inclusion and complication and inquiry, of viewing events through another's eyes, can create intricacy, layering, and idiosyncratic phrasing. Cheryl Fusco Johnson received the 2004 Outstanding Service Award from Iowa's Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. A contributing editor for the Iowa Source, Cheryl has published in Writer's Handbook, The Writer, Cricket, and many other publications. She also regularly conducts interviews with authors on KRUU's Writer's Voices, and let's welcome here today. Sort of like a corsage. Yeah. <laughs> and this is on. It is on. Okay. This. So welcome to Wednesday's Iowa Summer Writing Festival, 11th hour. Are we working here? This is working. Okay. Today we're going to explore questions and interviewing techniques. And some of the things I want to cover, you can remind me if I skip anything, sobbing in the restroom. That's what I'm going to start with. I'm going to talk about uh, getting feedback on your questioning techniques. The lessons that I learned from, um, uh, I was trained as an attorney. I worked as an attorney for a short while. I was a public defender, and I'm going to talk about what I learned about asking questions from being in law school and being an attorney. How to locate experts and the importance of social media. And I'll give you some online tips and talk a little about weaving the things that you learn into whatever kind of writing you're doing. And I think... I think that's what we're going to cover, so remember that that's what I said I'd do, and let's see how it goes. So my fascination with asking questions began when I was a little girl, and my mother told me it was really rude to ask questions. She said if people wanted you to know something, they would tell you without you asking them, and you know, to avoid asking questions. So of course that set me on the complete opposite path, and I'm always asking people things. This Monday, I was working in the Iowa City Public Library, took a break to go down to the restroom. A woman walked in. I was in my stall, but I heard a woman come in sobbing hysterically. So men probably don't know this, but in women's restrooms, every so often you do encounter someone who's crying, but it's usually you know some little discreet moment that a person is having, and it's rare for me. I've never encountered anybody sobbing in the restroom before. So I wasn't sure the etiquette of what to do. I was the only other person in there, so I came out of my stall, and she's in her stall, and I can hear her, and it's the kind of like snot running down your face, crying, just like a person is so upset. So I said, are you okay in there? And she said, I'm pregnant. And I, I, she was still like really upset, and I thought, well, I can't just walk out. So I said, oh, it, it must have been an unexpected pregnancy. And she said, no, no, it's hormones. And I thought, well, you know, that's not the kind of pregnancy I had, but I still didn't want to leave her in there because she still was like hiccup sobbing and stuff like this. So I said, um, it must be really uncomfortable to be pregnant in this heat. And she said yes. And she seemed to be getting a little calmer as we talked. And then she walked out of the stall, and then I could see her. And she was tall, looked like a strong woman, looked very pregnant, had a little uh, white 
coverall over the flowered tea. And I, I felt like I had to continue talking no matter what my mother said to me about asking questions. So it's natural to say, uh, when are you due? I said, when are you due? And I thought she was going to say next week, but she said November. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And I said, well, that must seem like a really long time. And she said, yes. And she was getting more and more calm. And then I said, do you have any other children? Because, you know, like, I think I asked her five or six questions. And she said, no. And I said, oh, you know, I'm a mom. And it's really, really hard. It is really hard. But it's also, you know, really fun. And once you have your baby, you know, you're going to feel so much differently. And you're just going through a hard time. You're going to be OK. And would you like to go and have some tea? <laughs> <laughs> And, but she was getting more and more calm. She said, no, no, I just needed to come in here and cry. I said, okay, then just remember, we will be fine. And I walked out, and there was a young man waiting for her. So I knew she was going to be all right. But you know, like, that's who I am. I can't help myself. And I come across people. I'm really curious about who they are and what they're going through. And if, if I encounter you and you so much, that'll probably torture you with questions, too. <laughs> so that was the sobbing in the restroom story. I have this show called <coughs> excuse me, Writer's Voices. It's an hour-long interview show. It's, uh, we're based in Fairfield, Iowa, but you can live stream our interviews. And I've been doing this since about, uh, Dory, you were my first person I ever interviewed. I can't remember when that was. We have Dory Butler and many other writers from Iowa City here. I think it was maybe 2005. <coughs> Excuse me. I've been doing these interviews a long time. And um, I get really great feedback from the people that I interview. I just wanted to share some of that with you because I want to legitimize um, you know, some of the things I'm going to say about asking questions. This woman named Polly Frost came to Iowa City. She's a humorist, and she was performing a one-woman show called How to Survive Your Adult Relationship with Your Family at the Angler. And I didn't line her up. You know, usually I call up the or, you know, contact the agent of the person I'm going to interview, but my partner in this venture was the one who set this up and then she had to leave town so she couldn't do it. So I started researching Polly Frost and I discovered that she had a very impressive background. She had written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The New York Times. Uh, she'd had her humorous essays, essays anthologized in two of The New Yorker's best of collections. But I also discovered that she wrote satirical erotic horror. <laughs> I, this really kind of scared me because you know, I, I mostly write for kids. I had no idea even what that would be, and I had no idea what she would be like. So I you know, continued doing research, doing a lot of research, and I discovered that she had interviewed Pauline, is it Kale? Kale? Yeah, Kale? This critic for, uh, you know, for many years, very famous critic. And the interview was so interesting, and Pauline Frost had interviewed you know, the. Um, Polly Frost had interviewed Polly, and her questions were so fascinating. So I started writing down the questions she asked, and when she came on my show, I asked her her own questions, and she thought I was great. <laughs> but she, and it turned out that the, the critic had introduced Polly Frost to her husband, who was Ray, is Ray Sawhill, and he was a, a writer for the Newsweek. So she, she and her husband had jointly done this interview of the person who was like their matchmaker. And that was like the most interesting thing that she said during our interview. And I don't know that anybody else who interviewed her would have gotten that piece of information out. But you know, it's sort of like a, a real personal fascinating fact. So after our interview, I got an email note from her. And she said, thank you so much for the wonderful interview. I had such a great time talking to you. And your questions were terrific. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm still thinking about them. It was a great Monday morning. I can't think of a better way to start off the week. So I've had lots of different kinds of people send me that kind of feedback. I, a number of years ago, Matt Hoover, who was the winner of the Biggest Loser TV show in its second season, um, came to my town. He was going to be the keynote speaker at a special event. Uh, there was going to be a triathlon, and it was a fitness expo. So he was coming to town, and lo and behold, he had written a book, and his book was called Matt Hoover's Guide to Life, Love, and Losing Weight. And to, to win this show, he lost 157 pounds, he won $250,000, and he also married the third place winner. And they're, they're still married, and they have like these two really adorable kids, and they go and do all this like active stuff, because you know, they're trying to be really fit for their kids now, too. Anyway, I also, like, I had no idea what that interview would be like, but he was a really fascinating person, and we really enjoyed our talk. And then he sent me a note after, and he said, I had a blast talking to you. It really was one of my favorite interviews. So you know, I don't know if every interview gets this kind of feedback, but it makes me feel like I'm asking the right questions. I interviewed a woman called Melissa Tozetti, who wrote a book called The Savvy Life about getting rid of clutter, living within your means, you know, like kind of organizing and uh, being careful about your spending. And she said, you're the best interviewer I've had the pleasure to work with. I also had good feedback. There were uh, a troop of Australian strippers came to my town. <laughs> and uh, I, all, besides having a radio show, I do a newspaper column you know, for this monthly newspaper called The Eye of the Source. And you'll see it here in uh, some of the stores that I've seen. But uh, we decided it'd be really cool to write an article about these. Uh, it was, I live in a town of 5,000. It's a farm community. I mean, this had never happened. I've been living there since 1982. Nothing like this had ever happened before. So whole, like, I don't know, 12 male strippers were coming to do a show. My whole knitting group went together. We, we took a couple moms out of the nursing home to go with us. <laughs> it, was, like, it, was, it was like quite an experience. But anyway, I, was, I have never been as nervous before an interview as I was with them. Let's call them exotic dancers. They didn't take off all their clothes, but they sure they took a lot off. So I called up their publicist and I said, you know, I'm writing an article for the Iowa Source. Uh, could some of your dancers meet with me? And they said, how many would you like? And I said, I think maybe two is as many as I can handle. So I got to talk with the male strippers and these guys were, it was so, it was like Polly Frost, you know, when I'd heard erotic, satirical, uh, they were so different than they sounded like. Polly Frost was the most refined, sweetest person I ever interviewed, and these guys, were amazing. They were just very genteel. I, I talked with the youngest stripper in the troupe and the oldest. So the oldest one was like 45, the youngest one was like 22. But they were very uh, sweet people to talk with, and they too sent me this thing saying, oh, we really liked your article, and thank you. And it, it sort of helped them think about their lives. And so because I've had this kind of feedback, I'm a teacher by nature, and I, I tried to figure out, well, what am I doing that's different than some other interviewers might be doing? because it's, I kind of operate on instinct, and I really have no idea what my technique is. So I did a lot of thinking, and I started thinking about my law school career. So we're going to go from sobbing, feedback, now we're going to go to the law school lesson. So I learned three things from uh, attending law school and being a public defender. The first one happened when I was taking a trial practice class. Most of the classes in law school are not practical or pragmatic. Most of the classes with abstract thinking, and when lawyers first become lawyers, I think they must depend on their paralegals for the practical stuff, because we didn't learn stuff like that. But this was back, I started law school in 1971. 
Uh, but I did take, uh, there was one class offered in trial practice. I took that class. The very first class, the teacher presented us with a situation. He said, okay, Mr. Smith had a lot of brush on his property, a lot of dead branches and things, and he was concerned it could be a fire hazard. He decided to do a controlled burn of this brush. So he set it on fire. Unanticipated, you know, unexpected, it turned into a giant blaze, and the fire burned down his neighbor's house. So, like, immediately I started thinking, oh, what a horrible situation. How would you feel if you burned down your neighbor's house? But what we were supposed to be doing is thinking of questions to ask Mr. Smith. So, the, uh, what we were supposed to do as an assignment during the class was ask Mr. Smith three questions. We are the lawyer for Miss Jones, whose house burned down. We have to ask Mr. Smith some questions. There's a lawsuit going on, and Miss Jones is suing Mr. Smith. So now I'm the attorney for Mr. Smith. I'm going to ask him, not for Mr. Smith, I'm cross-examining him. His uh, side has you know, already cross-examined him. I think we get a little confused in my trial technique. But anyway, at this point, we're doing cross-examination, and Ms. Jones' attorney cross-examined Mr. Smith. I had no idea. We were supposed to come up with three questions to ask him. I honestly could not think of a single question that I would ask him. But there was a woman in the class named Peggy, and she came from a long line of attorneys, and she'd been around courtrooms a long time. You know, boom, 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 she had three questions that totally changed my attitude towards Mr. Smith. And I'm wondering if anybody would like to throw out a question that you think Mr. Smith should be asked. Oh, what did he do to prevent, before he started, what did he do to prevent? That's an excellent question. Okay. Any, does anybody else have a question? Can you tell us a little about the direct examination? Uh, he didn't tell us anything about that, so all we had was... How he felt about his neighbor? Neighbor, okay. That's a really good question. Uh, in the back. These are good questions. Okay, now I'm going to read what Peggy said, and there's some of the things that you said. I don't know if I can say them the way she did, but I'll, I'll try. Before you set that brush on fire, you didn't bother to check the weather report to see if the winds would be strong that day and to determine in which direction those winds would be blowing, did you, Mr. Smith? <laughs> Mr. Smith, you didn't call your neighbors in the local fire department to alert them to the fact that you were starting a fire in your neighborhood that day, did you? You didn't ensure that you had a functioning hose or some other means of extinguishing an out-of-control fire on hand before you set those dead branches ablaze either, did you, Mr. Smith? So what I learned from this experience was asking the right questions at the right time is really important. And I also learned the difference between leading questions and open-ended questions. Okay, all Mr. Smith could do on cross-examination is say yes or no. And suddenly he comes out looking like kind of a, a, a jerk who didn't take simple precautions and could have saved his neighbor's house. Instead of like, oh, just this poor victim of circumstances. So, one of the things I learned is in most situations, you do not ask questions like that. Because in most situations, you are not trying to put words in the other person's mouth. You usually, when you're conducting an interview, do not want people to say yes or no. And before I invite somebody to be a guest on my show, I always, if I can find them on YouTube, I always watch them on YouTube to see, are they the kind of person that only are going to say yes and no? Because that, that would make for a lot of good air. You, know, you don't want to interview somebody on the radio for an hour if they're very taciturn. But you can also encourage people to give you a lot more information if you ask questions in the right way. 
And that, you know, that's not the right way when you're interviewing an expert to get material or you're interviewing an author like I do on the air. Okay. That was the first thing I learned. Uh, how you, what you ask and how you ask it is really important. All right. So the second thing I learned was when I started uh, defending clients in law school. So in our, there was no other clinical program. It wasn't that I really wanted to be a criminal uh, defense attorney. But that was, at that time, that was the only practical clinical experience that you could get at my law school. So a friend of mine said, I really should do this, and he talked me into it. And, and I, I did that. And I'm really glad I did. It was like one of the best experiences I had in law school. But I had 10 clients, and this, what would happen is we would usually go to jail to visit our clients. We'd have in our hands the police report. The police report would say what the client was charged with and what the witnesses said had happened. So I went in, and this young man was probably 22, and he was charged with assault. The witness statement said that he had picked up uh, like some kind of like a wine bottle or something and broke it over the head of somebody else in his bar. Okay. My job was to go in and get his side of the story. Again, this was not a case that settled. We went to court. And it was the other, the, the uh, state had presented their case, and I'm putting on his defense, and we had decided he would go on the scene. I really had done a lot of preparation, I thought. I'm being graded on this. And also, the uh, student public defenders, we were called the champagne of public defense because we had mentors looking over our shoulder. We were invested in things being as, you know, done as well as they could be because we were being graded. And we had more time than real public defenders who had many, many clients. We only had 10. So I have him on the stand. I go up and I say my first question. I'm pretty, I feel pretty good that we have a case to make. I say, state your name and spell it for the record. I had not asked him that question when he was in jail. And usually when you're an attorney, you do not ask a question that you don't know the answer to. So I said, state your name and spell it for the record. And the next like three minutes were excruciating for everybody in the courtroom because this poor kid could not spell his name. Even now when I think about it, it was so embarrassing for him. I humiliated him on the stand. I had no it was, and his name was not, it was like David or James. And it was a simple name, but he is struggling and struggling to spell his name. I was horrified to that and everybody felt embarrassed for him. So that was another thing that I learned. You may think you're really prepared. But you have to be ready for surprises, and you have to prepare more than you think you have to prepare. You, know, you really have to, when you are taking somebody's time and asking them to let you ask them all sorts of questions that the public is going to hear, but I do on the air, you really should spend a lot of time. Okay, so that was my second lesson, was really go over the top. It didn't really seem to hurt this guy, though, because it created a lot of empathy for him. He actually... I mean, it seemed like he actually had hit this guy, and he got a suspended sentence. And one of the things we did as, as public defenders is we wrote pre-sentence reports. So I had a special kind of community service that I was recommending to the judge that he do. And, you know, that's what, and that's what his resolution was. There was. I can't remember what it was, but it was something he was kind of interested in that he was going to do as, as his public service. Okay, so that was the second lesson. The third thing I learned. This was a really hard lesson. In law school, they used the Socratic method. And... Maybe that suits some people better than others. I thought it was emotionally abusive when I was in law school. It really, the way it worked is we would walk into class, we would have like read all these cases the night before and tried to like assimilate everything. And then the uh, professors would just randomly say, you, you know, blah, 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 and they'd ask us a question. And then they wouldn't let go. It was like a dog with a bone. They'd hone in on 
response. Uh, you know, today they probably bring in grief counselors. Or none of us knew this person very well because we'd only been in class for two weeks. But that really affected me a lot. And then, three years later, a week before he graduated, a second person in my class came to help. So uh, that person we knew because we'd been in school together for two years. And she sat, and we were both in law review, and she sat in the carol next to mine. And I always was so intimidated by her because she was so smart and, you know, was so good at everything. But, you know, she took sleep. It was the first person uh, used his car. car this really taught me something about asking people questions. This really changed my life after this happened, after this losing these two people in the class. I felt responsible for, for people. You know, like I was in my 20s. I was a little older than some of the other students in my class. But you know, in your 20s, you start coming out of that always thinking about yourself. And I really started seeing other people in a, a more concerned way. You know, like I realized you walk through life and you don't know what the people beside you are struggling with. You just don't know. So it's really important, whatever you do with other people, that you can respect their humanity and you treat them differently. And I felt I felt my school had done things differently, and I don't know about it. Okay, so um, be kind to anybody you're talking to in any situation. If you're asking them questions, really think about who they are as a person and be careful. Be careful in how you're asking your questions. Okay. Locating experts. I have interviewed a lot of interesting people, and one of them was named, did I bring her book? No, I didn't bring her book. But Deborah Halverson uh, wrote a book called Young Adult Fiction for Dummies, and she was a children's book editor for many years, and she writes a site called DearEditor.com. And one day when I was interviewing her, she said, children's book writers have a massive online community making social media vital for anyone who chooses to write for young people. You must network, regardless of whether you are looking for a critique partner or promoting your work. So I hear this. There's maybe one author that I interviewed who still writes longhand, has never used a computer, and you know doesn't even know what social media is. And he was like a really interesting guy. Almost everybody else I've talked to says you have to start learning about social media. You really have to learn start to do that. And that's how you connect. That's one of the ways you can find experts. Now another way to find an expert if you're really not interested in learning about social media is go into your local public library and ask to speak to the, uh, oh, I can't remember, information specialist, like, I can't remember, research librarian. A big libraries will have a research librarian, and they'll kind of like point you in the right direction, and one, you know, one name will lead to another, and eventually you'll find what you need. But another way to do this is through social media. Okay, so it took me probably two or three years before I could answer my cell phone without taking a picture of the inside of my nose. You know, like, <laughs> I, I'm really a technophobe. This stuff is very difficult for me. I took a class recently from a woman named Phyllis Kerr. She wrote Social Media Marketing for Dummies, and she happens to live in my town. I only took this class because she's such a fun, interesting person. I wanted to spend time with her. So it was an eight-week-long class, and I, I had no idea that I could learn some of this stuff. But if I can learn it, you can learn it. So what I did as an experiment is I posed a question on LinkedIn. I don't know, did, are some of you on LinkedIn? Have you ever asked a question on LinkedIn? Okay, I've seen a couple people saying yes. So my teacher taught me, Phyllis taught me, that LinkedIn is a great resource. And um, also she said, when you're trying to learn social media, just start with one thing. So I sort of started with Facebook. 
and I'm comfortable with Facebook, and I got on Pinterest, and being kind of comfortable with Pinterest, and now I'm trying LinkedIn. She made us get it, start accounts with everything. They're like, I have a Twitter account. You know, I, I just had them all. I had to, in class, I had to write all these passwords down, so eventually when I'm brave enough to try to use Twitter, then I can find my account. But anyway, so now I'm, I'm using LinkedIn. So here's the question that I asked on LinkedIn for this talk. What's the secret to getting great information from interviewees while conducting research for writing or business projects? So that's the question. I posted it in two, well, one thing I want to, well, I'll wait on that. I posted it in two places. I found a group, yeah, on LinkedIn, it's the official Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators group. I posted my question there because I've been a member of that organization for many years. And I thought, oh, that might be promising. I'll try that. And then, you know, I know they're writers. And then I posted another question in, in LinkedIn. There's all these categories. And I found the category writing and editing. I posted the question there. And there, it went out not to just my connections. And I think I have maybe 54 links on LinkedIn. I haven't been doing this a long time. But it went out to their connections because I got, I got response. None of the people who responded were people that I knew. So they're all complete strangers. But it went out to the people on, that I'm connected with and the people that they're connected with that are interested in writing and editing. Because that was my category. I uh, posted this. Um, when the questions go up, they last for a week. I, yesterday was the fourth day. So in four days, I got 12 answers. I looked at those answers, and each of them was like amazing. They were all really good answers. But I looked to see if the person answering had a green star by their name. If the person gets a green star, that means they've answered questions for other people, and they have been rated by those people, and they were either rated good or the best in answering questions. So I read those questions first, but nine out of the 12 were green stars. You know, so I really, every answer I got was a great answer. So I, I'm gonna give you 12 tips that I got by asking that question on LinkedIn. And then I'm gonna talk about uh, other social media a little bit, but I'm still kind of learning that, but I just wanna tell you what my teacher told me. So, but first we'll go on these, uh, go through these 12 tips on good interviewing technique. Each of these is from a different person, and I just condensed them because they sent me long, thoughtful answers. Number one, decide what you want to accomplish with the interview. Number two, why and how are two great questions to get people talking. And I agree with that. You know, that's much better than the leading question where they can only say yes or no. If you start a question with why or how, the person sort of has to give you a longer response. And another tip that I would add to this number two that I'm giving you is steal other people's questions just like I stole Polly Frost's questions. You know, when you see a question that you think, oh, that's really cool. If you're a person who does interviews, start a file on your computer or get a little notebook and just write down questions that you can use in different contexts. Tip number three, prepare a few questions, not a lot. Do not memorize them or read them off in order. And I think that kills an interview. Like when I first started, I would write 20 questions and go in. But if you have these questions written off, then you have this mentality where, oh, I've got to check off all these questions. And you're not really listening to what the person is saying to you. So what I do when I'm doing one of these hour-long interviews is I go in with my introduction typed out because I want to make sure that I honor the person by saying all the things they've done. You know, I've researched their awards. and their books, whatever, and I, I mention those things. I type out my first question, and then I have maybe eight categories. So I just write topics, um, and it might be family reaction, contact with fans, uh, marketing efforts, you know, just kind of broad topic, topics. I ask my first question, the person responds, I really listen to what they say, 
And then I ask them a question related to what they said. And we keep that trail going until it peters out. And then I look at my list and I think, oh, okay, I'm going to ask them about the editorial process. How was that for them? And then we'll carry that out as far as it goes. And then I'll look at another topic. And meanwhile, I'm making big X's on my little piece of paper until all my things are crossed off or we've run out of time. Okay, so tip number four. Be a great listener. That way the interviewee's answer can be the basis of your next question, which is what I was just saying. And that will give the interview unexpected twists and turns. You may get a unique perspective from the person instead of a canned answer to the same old questions. I've written about people, and then you know, before I've written about them, I've read the other stuff that's been written about them. And a lot of times it's the same material over and over. And you think, oh, I'd like to learn something new about this person. So you're not, when you are doing an interview, if you're going to incorporate into your poem or an article that you're writing, you really want to get, you know, something fresh. And the way to do that is to listen to what they're saying and be, real, be really well prepared. Number five, set the person at ease. In advance, and this uh, person who answered LinkedIn gave two tips. In advance, let the person know what you want to cover, but I try to avoid giving them written. I never give uh, an interviewee written questions now, unless they kind of insist. But if, a, you know, if the person hasn't been interviewed before, there's some reason they want a written list. I give them a written list, but I tell them, you know, it's really likely that we're going to stray from this list. There'll probably be things that'll come up, and, you know, usually they're good with that. But it makes a, an interview really stilted. If they have prepared answers to the questions, and you have prepared questions, it just comes out sounding stale, you know, from the get-go, because it's not spontaneous, it doesn't sound like a conversation. Okay, so that was one part of this tip number five. The other part, I thought this was cool, I'd never, I'd never thought of this. But at the end of the interview, say, one last question, and then ask two or three more instead of one. And I thought that was a, a, kind of a great idea, because this uh, person who wrote this said, the one last question line relaxes the interviewee, and you often get your best information at that point. So a little before you're actually stopping, just say, oh, one last question, and they'll, you know, they'll kind of like relax, and then you can shoot off a few things. Um, tip number six, some questions are controversial and or may cause tension. Choose the right way to say a difficult thing. Don't ask these questions until you've established rapport. And I made a huge mistake when I was interviewing Anne Lamott. So again, I had not set up that interview. My partner in this venture had set up the interview, and then she had to go out of town. So I was interviewing Anne Lamott. And you know, like many of you, I really adored her books, and I was so thrilled to be doing this interview. And I often have something I really want to know when I'm interviewing. You know, I've done research, and there's some things that I just really am curious about. And I was really curious with her how it was to write about your family in such an open way. So really soon after the interview started, I asked her some, and I haven't ever listened to this interview because it was such a terrible experience. I, I asked the question of like, what's that like to write about your family? And, you know, and this question came too soon and it incensed her. It really offended her that I thought she was revealing family secrets. And we never hit it off for the rest of the hour. So it was like a painful hour. And it did not have to happen that way. Like, that was an error that I made because I didn't, like, convey to her my true feelings for her. But she did also <clears throat> say at the beginning of the interview that she was really tired. She was on a book tour. You know, she was traveling and exhausted. And I, I think that might have contributed to it. But it's a huge mistake to ask something that could be a touchy subject too soon. You know, you really have to establish a rapport and 
think carefully about how you're going to ask something like that. Okay. And if you do want to listen to any of these interviews, um, I'm trying to think the easiest way to find them. It's a little bit hard to find them. But uh, you could interview, uh, you could uh, Google Anne Lamott and my name, and this interview will probably spring up. Okay. Or any of these people, like Polly Frost. They're all, you can uh, download them onto iPods and listen to these you know, interviews when you're traveling or cooking or something. All right. Tip number seven. Successful interviewing is about preparation, 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 just like you hear location, location, location. And this person puts a little different slant on that. People alter their vocabulary and content to match what they perceive to be the listener's comprehension. They delve more deeply into details when they think the listener has the capacity to understand them. So if you want to dig deep, you have to demonstrate by your own words that you will be able to comprehend what the interviewee has to say. So not only do you have to do all this research, but you have to kind of let them know that you've looked into things in a more comprehensive way than maybe some of the previous interviewers have. Like some of the people I interview are, are very surprised at the questions I asked. Natalie Goldberg, when I interviewed her about, she had just written uh, Old Friend from Far Away. I asked her a question and she said, nobody has ever asked me that. That's such a smart question. And so I got, you know, a kind of different response than, I'm sure she's been, you know, interviewed thousands of times. But you have to not only do all the preparation, but you have to, you know, do that kind of thing where you're thinking, what is it that I would really want to know? Or what is it that other people who read her books would really want to know after all these years? What would they want to ask if they were here in my place? Okay. Number eight. Oh, I'm trying to think what the question I asked her was that she said that to. I think it was, would you talk a little about the legitimacy of, or the validity of writing that is never published? And she really enjoyed answering that question. It's sort of like, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, does anybody hear? If you're writing stuff and nobody's reading it, is it still important for you to write? Like, that was what I really wanted her to talk about. Tip number eight, make sure that the interviewee knows you value and respect their time. Tip number nine, you and the interviewee should be relaxed, comfortable, and have fun. For that reason, never, ever be intimidated by the position or authority of the interviewee. Respectfully consider him or her an equal, not in expertise, because they are the expert in whatever you've, you've uh, called them to talk to them about, but as an equal as a human being. Because if you're intimidated, you're going to be very stiff, and again, you won't have a conversation that will be interesting to listen to, or you won't get that kernel of information that you could add to a story you're writing. You have to kind of overcome that, and you have to like just see that you and this person are equal. You both have life experiences and they've agreed to uh, be in this interview with you, and so they accept you and, and your questions. So don't let anybody intimidate you. Tip number 10, don't be too sure about what you think you know. The interviewee is the expert, and they may surprise you. And if they do surprise you, jump enthusiastically into follow-up questions. That's when you get the good stuff. So you might think that you already have a framework, but you might find out something that you just didn't realize if you um, maintain an open mind. Okay, tip number 11. Join Toastmasters. It has coursework relating to conducting interviews. This was not my tip. I was a Toastmaster for many years in my town. I was like one of the founding members of our Toastmasters group. But I didn't even know they had coursework relating to conducting interviews. But apparently, maybe that's one of the manuals. So. If you are going to be researching things for your writing or you're going to be interviewing people 
writing a blog where you interview people. It's not a bad idea to join Toastmasters and you know, get really comfortable doing that. Certainly every person that I've interviewed uh, who's a writer, they always appreciate the opportunity to talk about their books and their editors and publishers expect them to be willing to talk about their books. So there's many reasons it would be a good idea to join Toastmasters. Okay, tip number 12. This was my favorite tip. Leverage the power of your subconscious. First ask yourself, what is it I really want them to think and speak about? An answer will come to mind and that is the precise question to ask. And I think that's really my, my main technique is thinking, what do I want to know? You know, like after researching this person, what do I really want to know about them and about the way they work? Okay, so that was the LinkedIn answers. Now we're going to talk about Phyllis's tips for using other media. <clears throat> As I say, I can't really tell you how to use this other stuff because I'm just learning about it. But I wrote a little article for um, Children's Writers Newsletter about how to find a critique partner. Because that's a, a topic that is really close to my heart. When I interview successful published authors, they all have a buddy. They all have first readers that they really trust. I don't think, I, I don't think I've ever interviewed somebody on that topic where they didn't say, oh yeah, I have like a critique group and we're, we support each other, we read each other's stuff, or I have somebody who lives in another state and we exchange email, email manuscripts back and forth. They always have group supporting them or a person supporting them. And sometimes that's elusive. You know, sometimes that's really hard to find. So I wanted to explore that. And I'm just kind of losing why I'm talking about that now. But let's go back to LinkedIn. Oh, so I wanted to include information about social media in that article, but of course I don't know enough to write about that. But I called my friend Phyllis and I said, could you give me some information that I could include? And then I was so embarrassed because they, um, the editor cut off the credit. I was mortified because, you know, I talked to her, I interviewed her, I said, oh, I, you know, I, I learned so much from your book, I'll include the title of your book in the credits, it'll be, it's a sidebar, it's a sidebar, and they, they cut off her, any reference to her or her book, it's awful. So I had to call up the editor and say, oh, you know, this is a personal friend of mine, and I didn't know any of this stuff myself, I had to get this information from her, you know, she took the time to help me. No, we thought it was general information, and we didn't need a credit. Oh, I, said, I felt terrible. And then I, you know, I said, well, you know, it was information you could have from the book. And, and we went back and forth. She was fine. She had such a wonderful attitude. She said, oh, these things happen. And then it came up that they offered, if she wants to write for them, uh, they'll publish an you know, article that she writes for them. If she has the time, she's like doing a revision or something with this book, and she's really busy, so she couldn't do that. But fortunately, she is a friend, and she forgave me for that. But I mean, that's a terrible thing to happen. You know, somebody help you, and then they, they don't get credit for it. But this was the information she gave me. And uh, she said, feel free to begin by working. Like when you're first doing social media, you might not be comfortable. Some of the people in here I know are really comfortable, the young people in here. But some of us um, don't know what we're doing. And lurking is just you go and you eavesdrop. You know, you just go read what's going on. You don't get an account. You don't post questions. You don't post answers. You don't post comments. You just see what everybody else is saying. And that's fine to do that. It's like that's not uh, that's not like eavesdropping. It's just that's expected that some people are going to do that. After you've done that for a while, you might start to feel comfortable, and then you want to open an account, and you'll have a username and a password to get in, and then you'll start posting your own comments. You may never reach that point, but you might. 
Then she said, explore the search functions across a variety of social platforms. Twitter, Google+, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook. You'll locate new doors that you can open to find new writing friends or to find experts in whatever it is you're working on. One interesting thing that she taught us, she made us do this um, YouTube video in class. So we're all sitting there in class taking you know, video of ourselves talking about something. And we had to post it, actually post it. Then we had to take it off really fast before anybody saw it. <laughs> It was just like us doing things spontaneously, the scariest class that we had there. But one of the interesting things about using YouTube is if you post, like a lot of the authors I speak to do post things on YouTube, because YouTube is the second most used search engine. Um, I think Google is the first and YouTube is the second. So it's good to get comfortable with YouTube. I haven't done that yet, but eventually I'll get there. But she said a way to make it really pay off for you is there's a feature where you can add um, transcription of what is said on the YouTube channel. And you, know, you get your own YouTube channel. I have my own YouTube channel. <laughs> Nothing wrong. But when you post things, there's a way to make it so that people can read the interview instead of hear the interview. And those are much more frequently visited than the ones without transcription. So it's good to explore that. There's a, a feature where it will automatically transcribe for you, but there'll be a lot of wrong stuff. So if you use that feature, then you have to go through and correct it. But anyhow, I know a lot of you probably use YouTube, but think about eventually learning how to actually post YouTube stuff yourself. Join Twitter chats. Are some of you participating in Twitter chats? So Twitter chats looks like maybe a lot of you don't, but some of you do. There's a schedule that you can go to online. I would just Google Twitter chat schedule. And it'll tell you, like at 3 p.m. on Thursdays, children's writers, a certain children's writers group has a Twitter chat. And that means you can join it. You just can go and be part of that. You can post questions. You can get answers from editors if they're on that chat group. But there are groups for different things. My friend Phyllis was invited to speak to a chat group that was about people helping their children find money to attend college. And what she was contributing was how to help your kid get the embarrassing stuff they posted on Facebook and make it invisible to like scholarship committees at colleges. So that there are Twitter chats about all kinds of things and you can just go look down through the schedule and see what it is that you're interested in that other people are chatting about because that way you are connected with experts and peers. That's like a place you might find a critique partner. Or you might find, like, you're writing an article about earthworms or a children's picture book about earthworms. You might find your earthworm biologist or something by uh, joining a Twitter chat. Okay. Create a Google alert for the main keyword in your work. Filter the Google alerts for blogs. And then every day you'll get an email with a list of blogs that mention that keyword. So if you're researching, let's say, the earthworms, you make a Google alert for Earthworks, and you'll get an email whenever somebody's Googling. That might be kind of a broad topic, but I read an article once about Earthworks who uh, help fight fires by heating uh, stuff in the soil or something. But, so maybe if you have firefighting with Earthworms, you get a narrower response. Okay, so that gets us through all of our social media that she told me about. And I, there, but there were a couple other little things that I did want to mention. Okay, one thing is how, how, so you have done this research and you find some little kernels. Well, first, how to find the kernels of information like that are the cool things. So the way that I do this, 
is if I have recorded the interview, I listen to it while I'm doing something else. So I have like, you know, maybe several hours of interview on a subject that I'm interested in writing about. I'm folding laundry and I have put that interview onto a podcast and I'm just listening to it on my iPod. So while I'm doing laundry, I'm, I'm listening to this interview. And that does a number of things for me. It helps me hear what was said and it helps me hear like the really cool stuff that, that then what I'll do with that cool stuff is I just throw it on a, you know, open a document on my computer and write just the cool stuff down that all relates to each other. And then that's sort of like the beginning of a rough first draft. Another thing that that does is keeps me from the temptation of trying to transcribe the whole interview. I mean, like I, uh, my son has a website called Inkslinger Industries, and he's writing ebooks. Like his first ebook was How to Make a Book Using iBooks Author, and he was at first like trying to transcribe some stuff when he was interviewing some people, and he tried using uh, Dragon, but in the end, it turned out it's it's like awkward and inexpensive. He also tried outsourcing, so he had people in the Philippines transcribe some of his interviews. You could consider doing that. It's much less expensive than, you know, getting a court reporter to do that for you. But I found that if you just listen to stuff enough, you really don't need to transcribe everything that you've got. You only need what you're going to use in direct quotes. And you can hear that if you just, like, listen to it. If I am writing an article like this uh, critique group partner article, where I I, like I had interviewed so many authors who talk about their critique groups, I remembered who some of them were, so I sent them an email question. Like I don't, there are drawbacks to doing that, but there are advantages. If you're doing something where you want to quote a lot of people and just say a little bit from a lot of different people, I think it's better, like I wrote four or five emailed questions and I sent them to all the members of a critique group that I knew in Des Moines, and I sent them to some of the people I'd had on the radio, like a couple editors had talked. I sent them to uh, this Deborah Halverson who talked about the importance of networking. I went, sent it to uh, Wendy McClure, who's an editor who'd been on my show, who'd also written a book. I had just kind of like found my experts by having this show. And then I sent them out these questions. Almost everybody responded like within a day or two. And then I went through and, you know, like I actually printed out the responses I got and then highlighted like what I felt like I really was going to use and then got that kind of together. And by listening, or highlighting, you know, you can come up with things. Like a friend of mine named Linda Eganis has been writing books, and she's been in a lot of different critique groups. I've been in critique groups with her over the years. And she said, you know, like I noticed that she had this really cool quote that I wouldn't have to change at all, and this is how I ended this critique group article. Stay open to new relationships, Eganis suggests. Find ways to help others and they will help you. And don't worry if at some point one person decides to move on to something different. You may meet up again in a new group where you will find valuable new ways to connect with others in the future. I thought that was a great ending quote because I think that is like one of the central problems with critique groups is you feel bad, you know, if you join a group and it doesn't work for you and then you leave or you're not invited into a group you want to be in. I mean, there's a lot of hurt feelings around critique groups and I felt like she addressed that and I thought that was a, a strong, sort of kind way to end the article. So, you know, you'll kind of see these things as you read them over, let's see what else there was. So we talked about recorded versus email. I think that's it. I think that's all. I think I covered my little topics I had on my notes. Do you have any questions that you would like to ask me? Um, when you're interviewing an author, does your research include reading everything that they wrote, or how do you decide what to read? I read the book that they're promoting right then, and sometimes I 
sometimes I do that, or sometimes I have read early books, but um, my, my partner isn't going to be doing this as much, so I'm going to be doing a book every week, and I don't think I'm going to have time to read anything. But I do try to like find out what they've written and find out what why it was important and which is their most popular book. done this yet, but I'll just tell you what she says. Naturally, I can't find it now. Oh, but I will. I really don't know what I did with that. Somebody else asked me another question while I'm looking. Does anybody else have a question?
some innocent like person who's not used to being covered at all, you, you'd want to be careful about not publishing something that would embarrass them. That gets to the, the thing of being, being careful with people. And build on that again.
military engineering system. And you say, oh, well, I see that you have this really unusual job. It doesn't seem aligned with your interests. And how did you end up working there? How did you work your way out of that to get into writing novels? Whereas I think it's a product of knowing a lot about the person. I, I really never had that happen. You would never have had no, because that's what I'm saying. That's not what I do. You know, like with a journalist, it's, it's much different. You're like an investigative journalist. You have to like talk to somebody else. You go to a different lecture for that. Um, I do sometimes interview not state officials, but people who might have hand answers. And I found that one technique to get them to open up a little bit is to put your question in somebody else's mouth. Don't say, I think this, that, or the other. Say. I have heard it said, and these are somebody else's words, not mine, but I have heard it said that you you are a low-down son of a gun, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> How would you respond to Yeah, exactly. So you could try that. All right, I think we're about out of time.